Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and my able co-host Oliver Jones. This conversation is with Will Harris. Will disappointed his mother when he abandoned a career in corporate law to start Channel Flip Media after waking up one day with a business plan scrawled on a napkin. Six years later, on Christmas Eve, he sold the business to TV production giant News Corp. His mother was very pleased. He then became head of digital at Condé Nast, managing a team of over 100. He was responsible for creating a digital presence for their many prestigious publications, including Vogue, GQ, and Wired. He's now the founder of Entel, who are revolutionizing the production, discovery, and listening experience of podcasts and other audio content. With a host of amusing stories from his glamorous career and some incisive insights and predictions regarding the future of content and entertainment, Will made for a great guest. So without further ado, we bring you Will Harris. Okay, everyone. Today we are joined by Will Harris, founder of visual podcasting platform Entel. Will, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Great to be here in my own uh, office. Yes, yeah, so, uh, <laughs> welcome. We welcome you to your own house. I, I was about to say it, it promises to be a somewhat surreal podcast, starting with the fact that we're welcoming you into your own studio. Um, but also, I think it might get a little bit meta as we get on to discussing the podcasting landscape with a podcast platform founder on a podcast. Um, <laughs> so we look forward to diving into that particular looking glass. But to begin with, I think it'd be helpful if we could uh, get up to date with your background. Yeah, so I am a, uh, a media entrepreneur, media technology entrepreneur. Didn't always start out that way. I trained as a lawyer Mm. Uh, at Oxford, because I thought I really wanted to be uh, in the centre of that world, I decided that actually being a lawyer was incredibly boring. Um, and so much to my uh, mother's aggravation, <laughs> I decided to jack it all in and be a freelance journalist. Um, so I applied my trade in um, covering the technology space, covering Silicon Valley, going back and forth to the West Coast and covering all sort of the chip companies that you hear about, the Intels and NVIDIAs of the world. And in about 2008, 2009, I decided, God, there's all these sort of startups that are coming out of Silicon Valley. It's all very exciting. Big new sort of Web 2.0 culture. I reckon I could have a go at this. This doesn't <laughs> seem like it's that hard. It's, it's, Silicon Valley's full of sort of chances like me in their mid-20s. How did your mother take that news of going from, from a lawyer to a media a he, journalist to an entrepreneur? <laughs> Yeah, about as well as you'd expect. Yeah. <laughs> so I decided that I was going to set up a company. Um, we called it Channel Flip. I happened to um, meet my co-founder, um, true to true to form, in a bar. We had one of those wonderful things that you only ever think is mythical, where you meet a random person in a bar. You end up just cracking on like a random conversation over some drinks. You s discover you both work in the same sort of industry. You've both got some ideas. We ended up having four or five, um, I'd say they were beers, but they were probably like Bellinis or like, you know, lychee martinis or something known as. That's um, your story. You tell it how you want yeah, it to Yeah, and, uh, and we, wrote the, we literally wrote the business plan for Channel Flip on the back of a napkin. Um, what was the and we took it home with us, and the and the um, the idea was um, there's lots of you know YouTube's becoming a big thing, and there's lots of great content on YouTube. YouTube's the future of television. When was this? Sorry, this was 2009. 
Got it. But uh, a lot of the content on there is like dogs on skateboards and cats playing pianos and big brand investors, um, big brand advertisers I knew from my time in journalism wanted to be around quality content. So I knew that... Um, you know, if YouTube was going to be succeed as a platform, we need some high quality content. So Justin, my business partner, came from a TV background. So we decided to put together the idea of a um, a production company that would focus on YouTube, but had um, uh, TV stars and sort of had much higher production values. And that's what we built. We bootstrapped it from literally my kitchen table. Um, we Justin worked in TV, so he had some some good connections. We produced some shows with people like. Uh, David Mitchell, uh, Richard Hammond, Harry Hill. We managed to get big brand sponsors on board to partner with us. So we had like um, Dell and AOL at the time doing big sponsorships. And then I think the biggest thing that we did was we, um, after Ricky Gervais had finished The Office, he had decided he was never going to do the David Brent character ever again. And we managed to persuade him to bring back David Brent to do a YouTube series called Learn Guitar with David Brent, <laughs> which was going to be like what you... There was a sort of fad at the time of sort of teaching people how to play guitar, teaching people how to play instruments on YouTube. And we got him to do an entire series of how to play guitar um, as David Brent, um, which was fantastic and became like a massive hit on YouTube. Um, and we um, ended up becoming quite a successful company, grew to about 15 people, and we sold it to um, Shine Group. So we sold the company to Shine Group, which was um, Liz Murdoch's production company that was part of News Corp, the sort of big Murdoch empire. And I spent two years there, um, sort of growing, you know, continuing to grow the company, build new productions. We did some stuff in the US, we did some stuff with some Shine properties, um, like MasterChef, that was very exciting. Uh, so that was really sort of my first foray into entrepreneurship. And that was sort of very, um, uh, very rewarding and very cool. And it was sort of, you know, with YouTube, it's very much right place, right time. What was your revenue model for? Um, so it was all branded content. Right. So the idea was when we got these people like David Mitchell, um, we would say, OK, we know that David's got an audience of however many million. We reckon that's worth uh, that many ad impressions. The ad impressions on YouTube will sell for this amount of money. So if we can make it for under that amount of money, we'll make a profit. Got it. Um, so that was it. So you make it to order knowing full well you can make it work. Yeah, absolutely. And the model for the talent was very attractive because at the time, um, a lot of talent were fed up with um, not really having much creative control over what it was they were producing. You know, they were sort of... Um, locked into production deals with production companies or with the BBC or ITV or whoever. So the chance to do something on YouTube was really exciting for them. And presumably allowed you to do um, short form content, which is highly shareable as far as the internet's concerned. Absolutely. So it was their first sort of foray into doing in sort of interesting short things. And we did, you know, David Mitchell's series was a series of sort of rants on things that he was passionate about that we then sort of animated in quite a funny way. Um, Harry Hill did a really bizarre sort of eight-part narrative that um, was was extremely weird, but sort of was it was all done in sort of ten-minute segments that was very cool. Um, so it was a good um, a good selection of, of things that we created, and we created um, some of our own original IP as well that we put on YouTube. We had a great um, superhero team-up series called Knighthood and Decoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was based on a fairly famous caped duo, uh, <laughs> if they were sort of slightly bumbling, incompetent uh, Londoners. Um, and we actually produced a feature film. Did um, we did our one foray into, into producing features as we, we, we worked with great um, 
YouTube uh, star called Stuart Ashens, and Stuart is famous on YouTube for having a channel where he reviews um, just the most sort of awful old electronics tat or sort of rip-off tat, you know, sort of like fake Pokemon things that you buy for one ninety nine in, in Poundland or whatever. Um, I suppose it'd be 99p in Poundland, wouldn't it? Presumably. But uh, so we produced a, a, an entire feature film with him called um, Ashens and the Quest for the Game Child. <laughs> and the whole premise was that the Game Child was this famous mythical rip-off console of the, of the Game Boy. And we produced it as a 90-minute feature. We actually got it distributed in cinemas. Um, you can go and watch the whole thing on YouTube now. And the sequel is being filmed, I believe, starting in January. So actually, right. we sort of created, and it's the one thing I've got a uh, a DV uh, a Blu-ray on my shelf with an executive producer credit <laughs> on it, which to this day uh, has gotten me absolutely nowhere with the ladies. The whole Hollywood the whole Hollywood producer thing isn't quite as lucrative <laughs> as it seems. Is it is the sequel being done by the same production company? No, it's being done by um, the same stars and many of the same people involved, but Channel Flip actually when we sold it into um sold it into shine i left after two years and shortly after i left shine itself actually got sold to endemol ah yes um the, one of the other big production companies mm-hmm. and then endemol merged the whole of shine including channel flip into its own operation so unfortunately channel flip is no more mm-hmm. that's um, so bizarre isn't it I, I was going to ask what happened to to the company when it gets or any company that gets absorbed by a news corp yeah. or something like that and yeah, so there are always different models, and there's and you're, there, in a way you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you if you don't. In some cases, you know, the the company that's buying you wants to get really involved and wants to have a big in, input on day to day operations. In which case, it can be too overwhelming, and you can kind of lose the entrepreneurialism that made the company what it was in the first case. Um, on the other hand, if you're too hands-off, you don't really get any of the benefits of being part of a bigger company yeah. mm. um, and the reasons that you wanted to go in there in the first place. Actually, um, you know, being part of Shine was, um, was, a good, was a good experience, and they managed to find quite a good balance between letting us do our own thing but actually encouraging us to work with lots of the other companies that were in the group. So we did co-productions with some of the other Shine Group companies and, and, and things like that. And that was, so, so that was an interesting mm. experience and taught me a lot about... Uh, how to um, how to build a company that can survive a not survive, survive is not quite the right word but when you're building a startup very often the last thing you think about are the boring things like legals mm. and board minutes mm. and all the kind of things that in a big company you would just have a company secretary or a CEO or something to take care of mm. In a startup, you you just don't think about those things. So, like for the first year that we ran, we had you know basically no budget because the budget was like however much we could cobble together. Um, you know, no board meetings because we didn't really have formal board meetings because there was like four of us in a room in West London, like just desperately trying to like crank stuff out. Yeah. Um, we didn't have official accounts done for about eighteen months. We ran our VAT on a cash basis, which we were entitled to do because <laughs> you were such a small turnover business. You don't even have to pay. You have different VAT uh, accounting rules. And then when we came to sell to um, News Corp, News Corp, you know, rightly had, you know, all its corporate lawyers doing due diligence on the company. And they were like, (laughs) right, we want to see every board note from the time that you were incorporated through to now. We want to see every set of accounts you've ever produced. We want to see every, you know, budget you've ever produced and how you performed against that. And we were like... 
it was a really interesting experience because it was very clear that um, they weren't set. Uh, the News Corp was not set up to buy small companies mm. or to sort of say, um, you know, okay, you, you probably don't have that. So in order to sort of tick all the boxes, you know, I just remember spending endless Saturdays through the process of this acquisition going back and redoing all this work that I should have done three years ago. (laughs) I had to go recreate like all our accounts from three years ago and things that were that were then like accurate and legal, but um, was a hell of a lot of work to in a very short space of time. Um, And we only ever did our budgets, you know, even as we were growing, getting bigger, we would do a a year's budget and then rebudget for the next year. You know, they wanted a a five-year forecast based on lots of, you know, your projections and things like that, um, based on sort of real data. And it was the first time we'd ever produced like a five-year forecast with like a running cash flow model. And it was like, wow, it was a a hell of a learning experience. Mm. And it was one of those deals where we agreed to do the deal something like October the 10th, I think we, we signed like a heads of terms. And then you're just Ooh, that's, in a. Ra- it must be anniversary. Yeah, yeah. You're, then you're um, you're just in a race to get it done before Christmas. Yeah, because uh, if you get don't get it done before Christmas, the whole thing just inevitably falls apart. And when, again, one of the lessons of sort of entrepreneurialism that I learned out of that was, you know, timing is everything. You've got to mm. get these things done in such a way that you don't lose momentum, like deal momentum. Um, you, you get into. Nobody really applies sunk cost fallacy to, to deals. It's like once you're into the deal, then you've got to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think we closed it on officially the 23rd of December. Uh, so huh. I can tell you the 24th of December, I was Happy very drunk. <laughs> yeah, Did you get paid yeah. out before Christmas? Yeah, we got, <laughs> Did you? We got the cheque the day before Christmas. No oh, way. Wow. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a good day. <laughs> That's sweet. Um, <laughs> so I went on from there to go and do... So after, I did two years there, yeah. and that was a great experience. And, um, you know, there are, there are umpteen stories that you could tell from, from that area. I think my first day, so we, we finished, I won't tell all of them, but I will tell you this one because it's just because it's just my, one of my favourites, is uh, we, we sold the company on the 23rd of December. Uh, our first day at work, back at work was something like the 4th of January, and it was uh, the News Corp digital offsite uh, in Las Vegas, and so our first day at work was in Rupert Murdoch's uh, massive suite in the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas, which we'd been flown out to business class. <laughs> Cash rich. Yeah, and I was like, and, and literally Justin, Justin and I, my business partner, we walked into the casino and we, at least as you say, cash rich, we'd just been paid out. Yeah. And we went, all right. Red or black. I'll put it all on black. <laughs> you put it all on red and one of us is going to win. <laughs> bar, bar zero. Bar zero. zero. And then we went... No, actually, let's let's <laughs> let's go and have a lie down first. Um, so that was fun. Um, I imagine your mum was pretty pleased by this. Point. Yes. No. That was the that was the absolute point where she realised that I had made the right decision <laughs> and that actually it all been worthwhile. Um, I bought her a very nice Christmas present <laughs> to say thank you for all her years of yeah. uh, of support. So that was quite amusing. Was there any inclination not to sell? Did you think, with any sort of um, puritanical spirit, we thought, we really want Channel Flip to become this, this opportunity's come across and we need to take it seriously because it'd be nice to be paid out? Or, or was there an ongoing vision where you thought, uh, we'd like Channel Flip to become something more? No, than there this? was absolutely an ongoing vision. And we had, one of, the, one of the difficult decisions we had to make was we had a term sheet on the table from an investor 
to invest uh, seven figures into it at a price that we were happy with. Wow! So it re- so, uh, and it was uh, and it was contemporaneously, and it was the idea was because we'd gone out in September to go and raise a um, a big funding round. We hadn't gone out to sell; we'd gone out to go and raise a big chunk of money. And um, it just so happened that when News Corp got wind of the fact that we were doing that, they came to us and said, well, actually, we rather than raise the big chunk of money, why don't you come and be part of our group instead? And so we really had like term sheet on one hand, acquisition on the other hand, mm. which do we want to do? Mm. Um, so it, it was it was really hard. It was difficult. It was, it was lots of back and forth and deciding. Um, and in the end, we... Um, we managed to structure a deal with news that um, was was you know gave us um, some some good upside if the company kept going. So we felt that was a good sort of splitting the difference. Because mm. it must have been quite a, an appealing business to be in if you get to hang out with the comedians and David Mitchell and Co. It must be good fun on some level. Um, or is that over glamorising? So I was. Uh, I'm not going to say that's going to over glamorise it. I would say it over glamorised it from my perspective. Right. So I was a managing director, and so I basically was the person that sat and managed the accounts, the staff, the creative pitch, those kind of things. We had a creative director and an amazing production team <laughs> who actually got to they go and it. have all the fun. Yeah. So I remember, like, occasionally, like, I'd be allowed on set for like a couple of hours <laughs> in a day, and it was like, oh, this is the highlight of my day. This is fantastic. <laughs> Um, but it was it was less glamorous than that. It was actually far more glamorous. Being um, the, the role that I went on to after that was um, was working at Condé Nast, yeah. which which really was quite glamorous. So I have I have the headline from Media Week. Oh my um, god! It says, Condé Nast hires tech mogul Will Harris as head of digital. And so I, I from what I understand, your mandate was to take Condé Nast into the digital age. Now, given that you had all that experience. Um, at Channel Flip, then within News Corp, did it still feel like you were going into a role that, honestly, that you weren't prepared for? Because how many people were you managing? I was absolutely not prepared for it, and that <laughs> was why I really wanted to do it. Yeah. So at um, Channel Flip, we'd got up to 15 people. I think even when we were in News Corp, we were kind of 20 people. And the received wisdom is always that, you know, digital startups disrupt big old media companies. Mm-hmm. And so... I had really only ever spent, so at this point I had gone from starting Channel Flip when I was sort of 24 or something to leaving when I was 30. I'd really only ever worked in startups. And I thought I really want to go and see, A, what it's like to work in a big company, experience the reasons that they are getting disrupted, you know, see from the other side of the glass kind of what, it, you know, why it is they're facing challenges. Mm-hmm. And C, go and work out for my own personal development, like what it's like to build a big team, what it is to manage a big team, to operate in a much kind of um, more structured kind of environment. And, you know, Condé Nast really ticked all of those boxes. So I I, I joined with a team of, of 40, so it was immediately double what I had to start with. Um, uh, I think when I left, the, we'd grown the team to 90 people. So, I, so that was an enormous sort of learning curve, but brilliant. Um, we, um, the digital department at Condé was interesting because it almost operated as a, when I joined, as a sort of separate division of the company. So, you, so Condé publishes all these iconic titles like Vogue, GQ, Wired, you know, stuff, you know, absolute paradigms in their field. But the digital divisions were, were completely hived off. So the editor of GQ 
really had very little say over what went on on the GQ website, for example, mm. which always seemed like madness. And there was always this kind of um, argument back and forth between do you want digital specialists who know how to right-click baity headlines and who know how to do stuff quickly and you know, leave all that print legacy and, and all mm. that kind of crap behind? Mm. Or do you actually want, you know, this guy, you know, the, the editors know the brands inside out, the fashion director of Vogue knows more about fashion than anybody else in the country, you know, don't you want that expertise brought onto the website? So part of the challenge of, of Condé was very structural, which was really interesting to me because that represented that... Um, why is big media getting disrupted? Well, it's because they've got this big legacy business that you can't quite work out how to evolve it. Mm. So joining Condé Nast, I really wanted to do because it um, it gave me a perspective on all those things that I hadn't understood from the other side of the coin. Um, and there was, and you know, and, and no better titles in the world than to do it with. Sure. Was it frustrating coming from um, a social video web background? Um, because it seems a lot of brands are jumping on YouTube and video content now. And when you joined Condé Nast, I imagine they must have been miles behind a YouTube content strategy. So presumably there was this void where you were bringing them up to speed with sort of digital omni-channel presence. Um, how, how far behind were they and how frustrating was that getting your ideas implemented with the sort of uh, catch-up period? Uh, it was quite a way behind. And I think they would um, be the first to admit that. And that was kind of why I was there. Um, I didn't find it frustrating at all because it was kind of a chance to start from, not quite from a clean slate, but it was a chance to do a lot of stuff quickly. So the first kind of, you know, 60 days that I spent in there, we spent evaluating, right, what have we got? Where is it at? Where, what, what do we need to do to kind of get to base camp mm. um, as a digital business? And how can we execute on that as quickly as possible? Um, and then once you got to base camp, right, how do we then start to do some of the cleverer stuff like doing proper integration with the magazines and proper sales, 360 packages and those kind of things. So actually, it wasn't really a frustrating experience, um, certainly at the beginning. It was um, it was very exciting because we could we could we could actually move very quickly. And because the digital department was sort of hived off slightly, um, we didn't really uh bump into bump into too many other people too much so we could actually like really crack on and do things quickly which was great um and i learned a lot in those periods and i also learned um some some great um reasons why you know or, or, or things that happen in big companies that you just that you that you don't encounter in much smaller ones so my favorite one was um i was one of the only sort of business unit managers. Well, I was the only business unit manager in Condé that had run their own business, I think. So consequently, when they would sort of, you'd have an accounts department and they would give you the P&L of your department for the month, which in itself was amazing. So I didn't have to sit and hmm. do it. And I was like, oh, this is brilliant. <laughs> and you'd go through the P&L. And I just remember going through it and going, this just doesn't look right. This doesn't, why doesn't this look right? And then I was like, right, can I get like the next level of detail down on this? So I want like a line by line itemization on what I am paying for out of my budget every month. And it was like my department was allocated um, a share of the amount of money it cost the business to run the photocopiers, for example. Right. right. And we didn't have a photocopier on our floor. 
So I'm like, right, well, hang on. Why am I paying a, a cost towards the photocopier when we don't even have a photocopier on our floor? And in a great, great example of big company thinking, rather than saying, um, well, let's remove that cost out of your P&L, uh, they put a photocopier <laughs> on our floor <laughs> so that we could be charged it. And I was like... Okay. Yeah, uh, uh, every time I would sort of get something like that, I think, okay, this is why I'm here. I'm kind of <laughs> learning like why these things kind of happen. Um, I know somebody who worked um, for the Gents Journal and has just gone in to work with them. They, they've done a, an interesting model where they led with sort of social, uh, I guess, an Instagram feed first and have turned it into a print publication. And then there's it's sort of digital first, print second. Um, and he said when he came in, the sort of luxury spend and the trips to Cannes were, were sort of broadly speaking out of control. Um, and I, did, was that the case in Condé Nast that they still had a big legacy of sort of big executive parties and? Um, yes, and I'm, I'm going to hedge on that one. Right. Which is that I would say there was a lot of good, um, there were a lot of good events put on, you know, something like GQ Men of the Year is the party of the, you know, party of the season, the Vogue Fashion Festival, etc. Um they were put on generally um, either for no money or for profit. So, you know, if you wanted to host um, a big industry shindig for your latest Fashion Week party, you know, there would be a hotel who would give you free run of the hotel in order to have the party pictures then published in Vogue, for example. Or if you wanted to have, you know, uh, free vodka cocktails for everybody for the evening, like Grey Goose or, or Kettle One or someone would pony up cases of vodka in, in order to have the guests be seen drinking mm-hmm. things. So you realise that actually all these glamorous parties um, are really, are really, yeah, really don't cost the business very much at all um, because they're all. It's all sort of, you know, well, it's if I can have, you know. Um, a, a Cara Delevingne drinking a Kettle One photographed in Vogue uh, in a party, then that's worth it to me mm. to do it. Mm. That said, um, I will say that the what was interesting to me was that in terms of um, that kind of culture of work and socialising, mm. um, that almost half my role at Condé was kind of internal management of the stakeholders and half my role was sort of sort of you know running the business but and the external management because a lot of these big companies um, and this is not exclusive to Condé at all operate on a kind of um, decision by consensus kind of model so coming from an entrepreneurial background I was kind of used to okay this is what we're doing this is where we're going and we're doing it because I said so. Mm-hmm. And it's my company, so get on and do model. it, right? The authoritarian model. Yeah. So you have to learn to manage by consensus, not by authority, because as much as I could say, right, we want to do this on, on GQ, like, I can't really get that done on GQ without the editor of GQ agreeing with me. So, and I, and I picked him as an example not because he was a pain in the ass but because I got on very well with him right. yeah so actually um, Dylan we had a uh, we had a great relationship and we got we got a lot of stuff done very quickly but it was always a culture of okay well if we've got to discuss this you know let's go and discuss it um, over lunch or something and let's kind of be slightly civilized about it right um Although I will say that was partly due to the fact that Vogue House where we all worked was legendary for its total um, lack of meeting rooms. 
it was stacked to capacity with people in order to kind of keep costs down. And consequently, there were no meeting rooms at all. And one of my first challenges, you know, back to how do you get old companies up to date, is there was no way of booking a meeting room online at all. Mm. If you wanted a meeting room, you had to call the secretary of the department that technically owned that meeting room. So there was like a meeting room per floor and a magazine per floor. And if you wanted to hold a meeting, you had to call the secretary of that magazine and say, can I use your meeting room between this hour and this hour? And they would book it out in a physical meeting room diary. Parsons Greenhouse, is that you? I mean, in my head, this sounds like the 80s. Yeah. This is 2013. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And... um, even um, and everybody, there was so much resistance. I led this campaign for months <laughs> to get um, the meeting the, the the meeting rooms put on a centralized computer system, uh, and to be able to book a meeting room like through Outlook. And um, in the end, I negotiated a, a compromise. <laughs> um, but because, and I say this because so much of the, so I, I had a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, assistant at, at Conde, but so much of her time was spent ringing around trying to find a meeting room for mm. a meeting that we needed to have. And I thought, well, this is mad. So the compromise that everyone eventually agreed with throughout the entire building, the, the finance director, the IT director, all the editors, et cetera, was that we would put the meeting room schedules on an Outlook calendar for everybody to see. But if you wanted to book it, you still had to phone up right. the person and book it. Right. That was the sort of hedge. Because the ultimate rule was, if the the meeting room that it... Uh, that, that, that it belonged to, so if the, you know, the... Um, the meeting room that was on the floor of Brides magazine, if they needed it at the last minute, they got to gazump you. Right. Mm. Which led to one of my just... Um, there are occasional, um, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not talking out of turn next, there are plenty of these anecdotes floating around, but what I call kind of Condé Nast moments where you think this is only something that you would find at this, uh, at this particular company. And it was, I booked a meeting in with a client, um, someone fairly senior from a fairly big trading agency that I was trying to do a deal with, got them to come into Vogue House to come and do a, um, to come and do a meeting with my team booked a meeting room, turned up at the meeting room, which was on the floor of, I'm going to say it was Bride's Magazine. I'm not convinced it was Bride's Magazine, but it might have been. Only to find that the glass over the meeting room had been boarded out, had been sort of whited out with, with, with copier paper. And a big sign put on the front door saying, uh, do not enter, spray tan in progress. <laughs> and it turns out that it was like the bride's sort of annual summer party that evening, and they'd all got someone in to no come and do way. spray tans for all of them. No and I had to turn around to this like buying director of this agency and be like, should we go for a coffee and prayer across the road? <laughs> like, it was like just absolute madness. Um, at the same time, what was really evident was that... Um, there was a lot of ambition to change, and I um, and we achieved a lot very quickly. So as I say, we went from forty to ninety people. We built entire departments that didn't exist. We built a video department um, to do branded content. We built a data insight department to leverage all the analytics globally that we had to help us create better um, content. We create, just digital content, yeah, and so so digital, but then leaning into print, right? 
Um, Did the digital end up leading the print choices? It didn't. No, that's not true. So by the time I I kind of left, it wasn't leading, but it was considered in conjunction with. Right. So so we did so as part of my kind of you know as I say half my work was um, was was working sort of with the internal stakeholders. A lot of that was then getting them to understand how people could plan kind of three sixty events. So you would do okay if the cover star is going to be um, you know Kate Moss, let's do a video with Kate Moss that trails the magazine the week before it comes out. Let's do a more detailed version of the interview that's on the website, you know, the week after the magazine comes out. Let's make sure we've got pull quotes from the interviews that are really interesting social hooks that can go and be timed all these different places. Let's make sure we've got a 20-second shout-out from Kate Moss that we filmed that's perfect for Instagram. So we managed to get all the editors thinking, like, really holistically about mm. um, this kind of thing. And then and what people were... And it turned out that what people were worried about Nobody internally was um, uh, was resistant to digital, right? What they didn't want was um, a strategy where all the best things about the magazine got thrown out kind of in the name of digital progress, if you know what I mean. And data was a really obvious example of that. So um, people would say, you know, I don't want to know, you know, data for, you know, about what to put in the magazine. Like I'm the editor of the magazine or I'm the fashion director of the magazine. Nobody knows more about this than me. We don't have data to tell us what to do. We lead the data. Right. right? <laughs> and what we what we came up with was a um, was it was a catch line, which was uh uh, data informed, not data dictated. Right. <laughs> and what that came down to was was that was something that we actually allowed us to slip digital further into print. So, for example, we knew Condé Nast Traveller every summer would publish like you know the ten hottest bikinis to be seen in on the beach this year, right? And you know every year they're publishing this bikini you know feature, and they would always put it in their August issue because people go on holiday in August. Mm-hmm. And we went okay. Would it surprise you to know that actually the we did all sorts of Google Trends research and Amazon buying research and you look at all the, you know, we had every bloody analytics tool under the planet to look at trends. And the hottest trend online for bikini searches and keywords and that kind of thing was all in April. Mm. Because people buy their bikinis in April and then spend the next three months desperately trying to to get into them, getting the bikini. We all know that problem. Yeah, yeah, right. So I said, look, you've got, you want to do your bikini issue, absolutely. Publish it in April, don't publish it in August, because that's when people really want to know about bikinis. And they and the sort of, you could see the <sighs> lights switch on and then go, oh my God, I get how this, could, how this can work now. And that sort of thing went a long way to, um, to getting everybody comfortable with the idea of, okay, we don't have to let digital and data completely take over, we can be a holistic publishing company that can take the, the best of all worlds. Um, and the same was true with the other way around. You know, we learned things from from print that we that we took into digital. You know, the um, Condé Nast magazines are the most beautiful magazines on the planet. And mm. if you talk to people about what they love about the magazines, um, the art direction was something, you know, that always came up. And frankly, when I joined our websites were like, pretty fugly like they looked they were functional and they worked well 
but they weren't beautiful. Mm. And that was because nobody from the magazine had ever really been involved in designing them. So we went through a massive process of redesigning every single website that we had. And we involved the creative directors from the magazines to say, you know what, I know it makes like no difference to its Google ability or its searchability or whatever, but you need to use that font, not that font, because that font is GQ and that font isn't GQ. Or, you know, that aspect ratio is how we shoot things for, the, for, for, for print. That aspect ratio is what will work, therefore will work well. So we actually managed to take so much learning from the print into digital to create, you know, if you look at Vogue or GQ or something these days you know, online, um, they are beautiful. Mm. And so much of that was actually digital learning from print as well. So it was a really, um, it was a really fascinating time. And I did three years there building that team. And at the end of three years, I thought I want to take everything that I've learned and actually go back into do the world again. of startups <laughs> um, and see if I can do it. You know, take take my experiences from Channel Flip, my experience from Colin Ast, um, and and sort of bring them together into building something new. And that's how I kind of ended up um, here with Entel. So what's the what's the the party line for Entel, and how how did you meld all those ideas together? Uh, so um, Entel is a um, a new audio and visual platform. The idea is that it's um, what podcasts would look like if you designed them in 2018. Mm. And the sort of, you know, every business starts with an insight or every product starts with an insight. And our insight was that um, we didn't think podcasts were fit for purpose. They were, an ex you know, everybody likes listening to podcasts, or I say everybody. There is a small percentage of people, so about 17% of the UK population regularly listens to podcasts. And... When you look at it from a consumer point of view, there are several challenges. So one, it's quite hard to find new podcasts to listen to. Mm -hmm. um, word of mouth is very often the, the most common way. And we know that's a very inefficient way of discovery. So for example, at Condé, you know, 40% of all traffic coming into our sites was from social media links, people sharing on social media. And there's no social media sharing really of podcasts because nobody wants to share an hour-long MP3 file mm. that you've got to download and scrub through, right? It's yeah. a rubbish experience. So our first challenge was, okay, how can we start making it easy to share things? The second insight was that for creators, it's actually um, a pretty terrible experience as well. You're recording a, a flat, a very flat audio experience. You, If you're a publisher like we were at Condé, you wanted to reference articles that you'd written. You'd got mm. no way of linking that. You wanted to say, you know, um, here's the most exciting dress that we saw at Fashion Week, and you would talk about it, but you wouldn't be able to show it. And so you're going, well, this is not, no, this is no good. And from an advertiser's point of view, once that MP3 is downloaded as a podcast, you've got zero ability to know whether it was consumed, how it was consumed. And again, whilst I was at Condé, there was a big push into making sure ads were viewable, all the big agencies wanted standards around how long an ad was viewed for, what size it was on the page. Um, and you would, you know, you would trade and rates and things based on that. And none of that was applying to podcasting. And that was basically because podcasting is fundamentally the old RSS standard that was sort of invented in like 2001 mm. with MP3 bolted on. Mm -hmm. And it hadn't really changed in 10 years. Um, so we thought, okay, it's an ambitious lift because Apple is very dominant in this area. Um, but podcasts are having a resurgence you know more people are listening to them the growth is there um if there's a time to build a, a new version of what podcasting looks like um now would be it 
And so in the middle of 2017, I was introduced to, um, so I'd left Condé, I was introduced to the guys at Founders Factory who were working on a concept around a next generation podcast idea. I looked at kind of what they'd done and seen that they'd got kind of a quarter of a way there. Mm. And I could see how to take it the rest of the way using everything that I knew about the industry from Condé, mm. everything that I knew about building um, companies from Channel Flip. And I was like, we, I know now how to, how, how to build this company. So that's how we've ended up um, starting Intel. Because I can't criticize enough how poor I think audio ads at the beginning of, of podcasts are. I, I have to be a little careful in case we ever start inserting them into our podcasts in the future, in which case I'll eat my words. But when you hear a three-minute segment at the beginning of a podcast, I can't think of anything other than just wanting to skip that. So I don't think it serves anybody particularly well. Um, Except for the people making money off it. Yeah, well, I know. Hopefully, yeah. I'm sure Tim Ferriss has, has made a lot of money off it. I'm sure the people he pushes wealth or whatever it is to, and the advertisers as well. I mean, they convert really well on podcasts because it's such an engaged yeah. audience. Unfor- unfortunately, the the fundamental problem that you kind of identified a is that people get turned off from them, and want to skip them, mm. and good advertising should always be good content, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, nobody, you know, the, the old adage is that people buy Vogue and they like seeing the ads because they're beautiful, right? So how can you make ads that useful content? Second challenge is, if you, there are this subset of advertisers who currently advertise on podcasts, and they're people who are comfortable doing what we would traditionally call direct response campaigns. So I'm going to tell you about my product, and if you're interested in buying it, go to my website and use offer code, podcast name, for 10% off. And, that's, and that direct putting into the offer code is how you track it. Well, that's basically the lowest rent form of advertising um, out there. And in terms of um, big brand advertisers, like if you want Coca-Cola to advertise on your podcast, how are you going to show Coca-Cola that someone listened to your Coca-Cola ad? And also, like five units, you know, someone buying five things of Coca-Cola is not going to make a massive difference to Coca-Cola. So how do you get to scale? So the problem with podcasts is both scale from, on the, on the, from the point of view of the listeners. How do you get enough listeners to make a dent big enough that big brand advertisers care? And then how do you get measurability and trackability enough so that big brand advertisers are comfortable advertising in that medium? And those are the two really biggest problems. And to fix those, you need better data and an easier accessibility. Um, So for me, the the crucial thing about how do you make podcasting a mainstream experience is a great stat from... um, Edison does the best research globally every year on the state of the podcast. 65% of people know what a podcast is or have heard the term podcasting, mm-hmm. whereas 17% are regular users. And you go, right, that's an enormous gap. What is stopping that 17% getting to the 65%? And more to the point, 90% of people have you know, watched a YouTube video or listened to a track on Spotify, how can you get that 17% up to 90%? Um, And the trick with that is to make it easier for everybody. And easier means more discoverable, you know, a more engaging experience, etc. And then once you've done that, you can then address the problem around data, which brings your big brand advertisers in. And then you can make a really interesting industry. There are lots of companies right now that are doing a great job of 
addressing the industry as it stands. Mm-hmm. So, you know, podcast ads that are targeted to those people that will do something that are maybe high value goods that from from niche, relatively niche companies that are addressing that hardcore 15% of the market. But very few companies who are looking at how do we address this getting 15% to 90%. And that's really what we've been focused on. So how, how are you going about that? I know the answer to this question as we use Entel, um, but but maybe it's better if you answer yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so I think number one is, is to make podcasting a less intimidating experience. So we, um, you know, we tend to think of um, your average podcast player, if you look at something like the Apple iPod app, it's very functional, right? It's function oriented. And there's really very little um, kind of beauty around it. There's nothing to lead you through it. There's no kind of nice, um, you know, there's zero personalization around Mm. it. You know, it's sort of madness that your iPhone knows all this stuff about you. It knows what you listen to. It knows what websites you go. It knows all this stuff. And yet you open the Apple Podcast app and you've just got the same generic chart as everybody else. So a personalized and a and a beautiful experience that is more than functional um, helps appeal to a much wider audience. Uh, allowing people to discover podcasting in different ways um, helps you expand that audience. So for us, that's about um, all the shows that are on our platform are split up into chapters that are maybe only a few minutes long rather than 60 minutes long so that you can share one individual chapter. And that suddenly makes it easy for you to share one thing with a friend that will get them into something and give them a taste of something. And, you know, if YouTube had started out with hour-long videos, um, you wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be in the position that it is. You know, the fact is that shareable content is short and even if podcasts themselves are going to still be a long form experience, you need an element of shareability to, to get into it, right? Yeah. So um, bringing shareability to the client is really important. And then um, cross-platform is really important, cross-platform and streaming. So at the moment, podcasts were designed to be a file that you downloaded from your computer and you sideloaded to your iPod and then you listened mm. you know, on your commute or whatever. Well, now we want, you know, the ability to find something on the web, on my laptop, um, listen, start listening to it, continue listening to it on my phone, on my commute home, then sort of hand it off to my smart speaker to continue listening while I'm cooking in my kitchen or something. Well, to do that, you've got to have a consistent experience across platforms and you've got to have a a cloud-based platform rather than a, uh, what's the right way of putting it? a cloud library platform rather than a individual file that lives in one place. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we um, built our platform to sort of turn, you know, the file paradigm on its head and say, okay, everything lives in the cloud. You can download bits if you want for times you've got no signal or whatever. But fundamentally, um, you'll get the same experience on the web, on Twitter, on your iPhone or, you know, in a, in going into next year on your smart speaker. Mm. And, the, and the visual element, obviously, if you're only listening on a smart yeah. speaker when you're cooking, it, it, that's taken away. Yeah, so, in, so the visual element that we came to was, um, was again about making podcasting more kind of, a little bit more friendly and actually more useful in general. So uh, if you've listened to a podcast, I'm sure you've had the experience of, you know, someone's talking about a book and you think, oh, I want to go and buy that book. Mm-hmm. So you've got to go and, open Amazon and search for the book and find the right one and buy it. And it's like, why isn't that link right there? Mm -hmm. Um, So 
but but you're not always listening um, at a time when you can go and do that. So one of the things that we developed over the last couple of months, really in response to that feedback, was a recap feature and a reminder feature where if you've listened to something um, and you haven't con- gone and engaged with any of that rich content, the next time you open the app, it'll say, hey, did you want to go and get that book? Mm-hmm. Or it'll email you a link to something that you were interested in as you went along. Because people drive, you don't want people using their phones when they're driving, mm-hmm. um, but they still want the ability to do something yeah. afterwards. So for us, um, and I've, I've got a, um, a famous bounty out for this, so if anybody can come up, anybody listening can come up with a better name um, than this, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm willing to go for it. But what, we, what I call it is uh, non-contemporaneous context-sensitive content. There's got to be an acronym. For there's that. got to be an acronym for that, and there's some way of rearranging the words. But what it is is it's content that's contextual to what you're listening to, but you don't have to interact with it contemporaneously. Do you know a perfect example of that was the Elon Musk and Joe Rogan podcast where they were talking about that whiskey, and if I was the whiskey owner and those two were gladly talking about how much they're enjoying it, you'd benefit massively from people being able to go and shop that as it's being put in context. Because that's it. Sometimes but with, but within the podcast app experience, yeah, rather, rather than yeah, app. for me yeah. to go and Google search, there must be a huge drop off. Um, and I think that sometimes naturally we, we're probably selling stuff within our podcast by just definition of having a discussion about it, which yeah, is absolutely. a nice, yeah, organic fashion for it to appear. Yeah, but again, to expand the and then you know to come back to the to the to the market piece to expand the world of podcasting. You need multiple revenue streams. Yeah. Advertising is going to be a revenue stream, but why couldn't e-commerce be a great revenue stream? Yeah. Huge. Could be absolutely huge. Um, Do you I, think that you could add that into the? the absolutely. So at the moment, if you um, we ha- we have a great podcast on the, on our platform called Metro Book Chat, which is literally by by the Metro newspaper. They do a review of a book every week, um, and you can just whilst you're in the app, tap the tap the link and buy the book. And it's an affiliate link. Yeah, right. Dead okay. simple. Okay. So um, you know, there's no reason that that can't be mm-hmm. you know white, more widely adopted in the future. And and presumably we were talking about advertising before. Um, is there a way then that we that podcasters can make the experience better for their consumers with advertising by tapping into this? And if so, how? Yeah, I mean the um, the tension between uh, advertising um, to make money and what consumers will put up with is always is always there. Yeah, um, you can look at you know. Very but, but as you said before, like some people like the the collab yeah. at Christmas, and many and in many cases, it's it's completely different by a by platform and b by by demographic. So, for example. American commercial American commercial radio is generally 18 minutes of ads for every hour, for it, within an hour of content. Mm. In the UK, it's generally eight minutes of ads for an hour of content. Just a cultural difference. So cultural difference between how much you're prepared mm. to, to to put up with online. Um, for example, at Vogue, um, I'm going to get this stat wrong, but you could. <laughs> That's a promise. It is. It is a promise. I don't know it well enough now anymore. But it was certainly the case at one point that, you know, the September issue of Vogue, if it was 400 pages, it was 280 pages of ads, you know, and 120 pages of editorial. And you're absolutely prepared to put up with that. Well, if you were on a website and, you know, 55 to 65% of your screen real estate was an ad, yeah. you, you obviously wouldn't put up with that. Yeah. So there is a balance to be found in... Um, 
in in how to make sure you get a good advertiser and a customer experience. Now, what's going to get really interesting over the next 18 months, so this is a prediction that I will put out there that, nice. you know, people say, well, um, I don't mind having ads in my podcast um, as a listener um, because I can skip them. I can skip them really easily. I can just hit the plus 30 second button, the plus 45 second button, and I can just move through them. My prediction is that that is going to go away in the next 18 months. They'll take away the functionality. They will take away the functionality. You'll be able to mark a segment of your content as an ad uh, and the ability to skip will go away. I can almost guarantee you, you it. On you mean on on, on traditional prediction on Apple Podcasts and it's already the case that you know adverts are starting to be inserted dynamically um, into you know so when you hear those 30 second podcasts yeah. they are a rotation of dynamically inserted ads so the um, the the server that's serving you the podcast knows what's an ad and what's content yeah. it's not going to be long before the apps that you start to consume know what's an ad and what's a piece of content as it comes through to your app and there's going to be immense pressure from advertisers um to lock down that kind of functionality in the same way that you get non-skippable 30 second ads on youtube right yeah yeah but isn't aren't those adverts generated by youtube the platform whereas adverts on podcasts at the moment tend to be the the podcasters have have a relationship yep. with the company, and so they're yep. they're inserting. So it that the... so again, that's something that will change as the market grows. So it's absolutely not scalable. If you look at, um, I say a great, uh, taking a random example, you know, if you look at something like it's a website like Mashable, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about the internal workers of Mashable, but I'll take a guess and say that there are a hundred different brands that will advertise on Mashable in a month. You're not going to have they have the capacity to have a podcast host record a hundred different ads you're going to move to a radio model like we currently have where radio plays out a 30-second pre-recorded ad that a creative agency has made mm-hmm. um, that will play out across 20 different channels in exactly the same fashion. That will absolutely happen to podcasting. So it's almost like podcasting becomes more of its own radio channel. Podcasting is moving... Like, like YouTube is, with TV. Is YouTube is on the coming... Ab, that is absolutely the analogy I make. So um, radio is... So, so podcasting is becoming more radio in the way that you could, YouTube is becoming more TV. And the great, great example of that that I can tell you is that in the US last month, um, seven of the top ten providers of pon- podcast content by popularity were radio owners. Really? Wow. Yeah. They're dominating it absolutely dominating it so if you look at just so literally the number of the number of downloads of podcasts take the top 10 producers of those podcasts you've got a couple of independents like Gimlet and Wondery in there but you've got iHeartRadio Clear Channel uh, those kind of people that's 7 out of the top 10 are radio companies and so it's absolutely inevitable that um, TV that, that podcasting is going to go radio I mean if you look in the UK the biggest seller by far of podcast advertising is Global Radio Wow. which has a podcast platform called Dax. Um, disclosure, uh, my fiancé works at Dax, so <laughs> I, I sort of know some of the, the inside of these stats. But, like, I'm, I, I don't know this number. Again, I don't know this number exactly, but um, roughly um, 70% of all podcasts in the UK are sold by Dax, which is owned by Global Radio, and you have to imagine that there's going to be an increased amount of synergy 
that goes on between those mean, two, right? Podcasters will lose the ability to generate their own revenues through ads. Not if they use Entel. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, so I think I mean the, the, they're going to always live side by side, right? So a you, you're going to have you're going to have ads inserted by um, let's let's try and think let's try and think of a good example. Um, on on YouTube, you might have a 30-second ad at the beginning of your YouTube, which is being created for TV and is just playing out on YouTube. But you're still going to have, um, you know, product placement within the shows, or you're still going to have um, somebody reviewing the latest, you know, whatever it is that they've been paid to do. So yeah. all these, all these uh, models exist um, alongside each other yeah i guess i'm getting confused between advertising and like sponsorship promotion yeah i mean you can you there are as many different names for this kind of thing as there are people doing it whether you call it advert advertising sponsorship branded content product placement advertorial um you know the different combinations of all the other things but i think what that then leads you into is 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 the last little bit which is going to be consumer pay so like a patreon type model so either a patreon type model or a spotify model so if you look at spotify uh-huh. Spotify charges you whatever it is, seven ninety nine a month in order to get rid of the ads that it puts in because you can't skip those ads. Mm. Well, if you imagine a world in which uh, you can't skip podcast ads, the next obvious evolution is, well, I'll pay four ninety nine a month to skip those podcast ads. And then you start to open up platforms that are, um, that, you know, that give you the ability to do that. Uh, so that is definitely going to come down the line. And then the months. expectation for the consumer, if I was paying four ninety nine is I expect to be able to traverse podcasts at will for the content that I want, which is the point you made about Apple giving you the description and then an hour of content. Yeah, absolutely. You don't know what's coming up. Whereas if I said, I want to find information out about Trump, go on my podcast app, and then it's helping me traverse all the latest episodes talking about Trump. Absolutely. Then I'd pay for the subscription. Yeah. And I think the biggest biggest mistake that people make when they're thinking about the podcast market today is analyzing what the podcast market is today. Absolutely. Not analyzing, if you look at every trend, whether in advertising, in subscription, in monetization, in media, whether you look back to television, whether you look back to radio, whether you look back to print, whether you look back to digital, whether you look back to online video, it's all follow the same progression. Mm. And the idea that podcasting isn't going to follow the same progression, I think I think is mad. But you might pull us off that base, because when I'm using Entail um, plug, when I'm using Entail, when I'm browsing through the content, if a visual ad came up while I was still listening to it, I don't think I'd feel too bothered by it because the, the audio would still be playing, we'd still be talking, and let's say if Coca-Cola wanted to pop up to let you know it's Christmas time, that would be okay by me because it's not interrupting the experience that I'm enjoying, which is the audio. Um, or it even is, if it, it is. It's, it's, it's sort of giving you a supplementary experience yeah, or exactly. giving you a coexisting experience. Yeah, so I think that the idea that you can visually place ads within the audio format via Entail or even the fact that as creators we're able to think of the content as chapters means that I wouldn't mind sacrificing in the future one chapter brought to you by um, you know, some, some brand for yeah. seven minutes and just to focus on the integrated play around why that's valuable to Everybody, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the fact that there's so much, um, you know, everything that we've talked about is a maybe, it's a possible, it's a probable, it's whatever. Um, For us, the reason that we're building Entel is to answer all of those questions. Like, you know, if you put that visual accompaniment for an ad underneath some audio that someone is listening to, is that more effective than actually interrupting their ad experience? Um, But someone's got to try it and find out. Yeah. And I think... um, just assuming that the current model is going to carry on as it is, like that's never going to happen. So one of the exciting things that I really enjoy about doing Entail is um, 
getting to explore what some of those new models are. And do you think the the increase in interest in podcasts is the desire for people to get authentic long-term content in a world where there's a lot of clickbait and a lot of, call it fake news, but you know, people want the source to come out and, and provide information yeah. rather than the media to constantly be producing that? So... Um, there are a, a couple of things that you can that you can look to for that. So um, to get really um, philosophical, uh, people love being told stories, and people, you know, the experience of sitting around a campfire and telling each other stories is as old as humanity itself, right? And so there's something quite intimate about having someone tell you a story. Um, the audio format, having someone directly in your ears, is very personable, and um, if you can make that experience authentic, that combination of authenticity and intimacy is actually incredibly psychologically powerful. Because mm-hmm. um, it's not just that you're listening to a story, but you're, you're sort of subsumed within that story. Because say the interviewer or interviewers are um, going on an intellectual journey to understand the, the interviewee. The listener is sort of embedded with them and is like part of that intellectual Absolutely, journey. you're being taken on the journey with them. Um, you know, I think... Um, you know, so I think number one, it's a audio is a very compelling format, and there's a great stat which is um, which I'll murder, but is you'll get, <laughs> but you'll get the point. Um, uh, so there was a study that I saw in the Guardian a couple of weeks ago that was taking um, fiction that was produced that was originally a book that had been adapted for film and been adapted for audiobook. And they measured and they, they showed people each one and they measured their emotional responses to each of them. And the audiobook had the had generated the most emotional response in the consumer. More, the more so than the film and more so than the book. Because the audiobook is is telling you and drawing you into it, but not giving you but not just showing it to you. Yeah. And be- not just slapping it in front of you. Because you infer you, when you imagine, you infer from your own experience. And yeah, so and it's like the experience of, um, you know, listening to or reading The Lord of the Rings is always going to be better than watching the films because you've got your own imagination of what those characters are like, you know. Yeah. So so I think one of the reasons that podcasts are successful is that um, they are, um, you know, incredibly effective story. It's an incredibly effective storytelling medium. Number two is that... Um, we increasingly live in a world where media media companies, big media companies, need to find new ways of connecting with people. You know, we live in a, a very fractured media environment. People read the paper less. People watch TV less. So any new way of connecting with somebody is going to be popular to some degree. Um, and I th- think the third thing is that we're all traveling a lot more. Um, mm. You know, the average commute time um, for, a, for a London worker has, what, doubled in the last 10 years. Um, we fly more. We, you know, travel across the world. You know, it's not uncommon to commute from, you know, Paris to London and back or whatever. Um, and I think that um, podcasts are a really convenient, um, convenient way of getting information. I think Ollie's made a good point as well earlier is that the podcast kind of leads you, if you imagine being all tired on a flight to Geneva, um, reading an article, you can only get through it as far as your persistence to get through the article permits you. Whereas following the interviews through, they're driving the journey, you're a passenger to it, they're kind of doing the intellectualization they're for you. They're kind of doing can, the heavy lifting for you. Yeah, and you can yeah. just absorb it. It's a sort of slightly more relaxing feeling. I can imagine on a commuter flight thinking that... I would enjoy putting earphones in, just putting my head back and closing my eyes and listening to something rather than trying to work through an article, I think. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you can, you know, there are plenty of, um, you know, podcasts around meditation and things these days that are absolutely, you know, um, playing into that trend. Mm-hmm. Um, how do, you know, is there a risk with the explosion of con- content from podcasters that sort of everybody ends up having their own radio channel? And how much would you advocate that brands try and create podcasters as a sort of multi-channel marketing strategy? Oh, that's a great one. So, uh, uh, there is, uh, I think I'm right in saying that there is three days worth of content uploaded to YouTube every hour. Mm. Might be every minute, it might be by a factor of 60. Um, <laughs> but like, we are now living in a world where it's impossible to consume the amount of content that's being created. Mm. So the question is, do you want to pick and choose the content that you want, or do you want someone to do that work for you? Right. And most people have, you know, a podcast experience is generally I'm choosing what podcasts I want to listen to and to add to my playlist. A radio experience is I'm turning on the radio. I'm being fed whatever's on the radio. And broadly, I know what it is. And it's the same experience that you get in television. Right. It's the reason that television isn't dead. It's because I can put on E4 and I know there'll be something roughly kind of funny and it'll probably be Friends and it'll probably be an American rerun and it'll be entertaining. Or I can put on ESPN and it'll be some blokes talking about basketball or football or something. It'll be entertaining. I've got no work to do. There's, it doesn't take me any effort to do that. Mm-hmm. If I put on Netflix, the first thing oh, I do when gosh. I sit down Netflix is go, Shit. what am I going to watch? There's so like, you, you, can, you can spend more time choosing what to watch on Netflix than you can yeah. actually do watching it. Yeah. And I think it's different use cases. You, you, gen, you know, quite often you want specific things to listen to, but also sometimes you just want someone to make that choice for you. Mm. And I think the um, the difference between, um, you know, back to our thing about how podcasting is becoming more like radio. I think the idea that, um, you know, podcasting is kind of only a step away from on-demand radio, and on-demand radio is only a step away from live radio. Mm. Um, it's uh, you know you're going to see there's, there's plenty of room for both I think is the answer can you get that within I'm going to insert within Entail because that's what we're discussing whereby you have a static series of programs and then maybe once a day you have that live feed straight from the you know from two hosts yeah 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 stay, to, uh, I would say stay tuned on that one okay <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely what is the vision where do you hope to be um, I think, you know, the idea for Intel is that we would like to be the most popular way of consuming um, smart audio, you know, as we call it, in in the future. Mm-hmm. Whether, you know, I don't, I don't like the word podcast. We say podcast all the time, but mm-hmm. I, I don't like the word podcast because it's an anachronism. Apple does, you know, it came about because Apple produced them on iPods and Apple doesn't even make up iPods anymore. You can't buy an iPod. Yeah. So the idea that we have something called a podcast seems entirely inappropriate it's true um if you think of on-demand audio let's say yeah. uh, we would like to be the number one way that you get rich on-demand audio and i think for us that's going to include um f- making it easy for people to access everything that's out there creating new experiences um that don't exist currently and you know making some of our own content that can only exist on our platform yeah well i recommend to everyone they check it out and and check us out as well on the platform thank um, you very much um going slightly mindful of the time um so it's probably a good moment to move on to the, the quick fire 
Unless yes. you had something else? No, well, I've always got more questions. No, you hit, know what hit, me with a, hit me with a quick fire. Come quick on, fire. Well, we, actually, we've got a few predictions. Do we want to get some more predictions? We'll out? have one more prediction. Yeah, we'll I'll have, have prediction. a prediction. My prediction is that Startup Microdates will be business podcast of the year 2019. Yes. <sighs> is, is, uh, can you help us with that? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. My, uh, that's, no, I have a, a great... Um, my, my actual prediction is... Uh, that is an actual prediction. That but actually, my, yeah, my, my production... Sickly sweet prediction. Um, <laughs> Um, I think we're going to see in the next five years um, a kind of uh, an increasing geo segmentation of the web than we're seeing now. Right now, it's fairly well known that you get a different version of the web in China Mm -hmm. than you get in the rest of the world. Uh, It's less wider known that in different parts of Europe, you get a different version of the web. So in um, Germany, for example, a lot of um, and France, a lot of you know references to Nazism and World War Two were removed mm-hmm. um, by search engines specifically. And I think as we see net neutrality enshrined in law in some countries, but not in other countries, um, I think we're going to see a much more splintered web than we than we see currently. That's now. definitely a bad thing. Um, I mean, people is don't... it definitely a bad thing? I think it. Pr- I think it probably is. I think I would rather um, I'd rather have if there are going to be versions of the web or fractured versions of the web. I'd like to have access to all of them. Yeah, yeah there has to be some sort of mode. You don't, want, you don't you want, want you don't want your 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 information diet being dictated to. No, exactly. I love you. reading. A, you know, I love reading a lot of American stuff that I that I that I wouldn't get. Or you know, conversely. You know, it's it's dangerous that you can't. You know, if you're in China, you know you know nothing about Tiananmen Square, for example. Yeah, well, um, I mean, know, I think also um, they talk about at the moment through Facebook. You see someone produce an outlandish viewpoint, and you you just think they're insane. You can't understand how they've arrived at that. Mm. But then actually, they've been fed a completely different, yeah, different re- reality. So that you're actually arguing about two different realities, and yeah. there's no way that you can have a conversation. So I think so. I think that, that I mean that's a separate point. The idea of the fact that we're all living in our own complete, you know, yeah. algorithmic reality bubbles. You could spend an entire topic on sure. an entire thing on yeah. that. Um, but but, I, but I, think just, I think just a uh, dif- different versions of the web for different geographic locations is definitely going to happen. Right. Um, uh, interesting, because I think that breaks down the idea that we become a web culture mm. where people, because I, I anticipate a lot of people uh, in Brazil learn their English off American movies and YouTube, mm-hmm. and they all have this slightly sort of curious American accent. And it made <laughs> me think that people kind of, will inadvertently find the, the web language that um, traverses everything. Um, I digress. Uh, the next one is, uh, we're gonna actually ask you two questions here. It's a book that you value and you think is useful for people to read, probably with if you've got one for you personally and one for a sort of media slant, but also a podcast that you find useful. You don't have to name ours, but if you want to, that's okay as well. Absolutely, so a book that I would recommend everyone reads is um, Hit Reset by Satya Nadella. Hmm. So Satya Nadella is the new, relatively new CEO of Microsoft, um, who came in and really, by everybody's estimation, has completely transformed the company. If you look at purely financially, you know, the stock price is on the up for the first time in five years. The culture is um, completely changed. Microsoft, um, I think as of yesterday, is now the largest contributor of patents to open source. Um the way that Satya came in, recognized the flaws in the strategy, took everybody's kind of viewpoints into account, and really has completely recreated Microsoft from mm. the ground up. You've only got to look at the fact that now um, 
Microsoft is now a top five PC manufacturer for the first time ever as of um, this month. Um, you'd have to, you, you could make a good case that um, their, their tablet and uh, laptop strategy is ahead of Apple's for the first time in 10 years. Um, you can look at products like um, Office 365 that have taken um, what was a, you know, Office was, was Microsoft's biggest earner outside of Windows. Messing with it is an incredibly high risk. And by turning it into a subscription product, they've, you know, making more money out of it than ever before. And the book documents really well the process that he went through to do that. Um, and it's incredibly inspirational. His personal story of being a, a migrant to America and of coming, you know, from a, a, a fairly, you know, not a privileged background, um, it is a really, really, really inspiring book for, for not only, you know, people running big businesses, but for entrepreneurs as well. Mm. Um, for a podcast that I absolutely um, value and listen to, there are... Um, far far too many but i will recommend um what would i recommend my apps my absolute favorite and it's um it's not on entel so i'm going off brand here so apart from the fact it's a standard rss podcast uh, it's a podcast called dlc um which stands for downloadable content and it's a weekly podcast about video games and it's hosted by um a couple of guys who are just the nicest guys in the world and whereas video game culture can be incredibly toxic mm. um they are just two very positive voices. It's an hour and a half every week, and it's really intelligent, interesting discussion of um, the video games world. And if you're into video games at all, I would highly recommend it. Mm. Well, I find that just a quick insertion here, very interesting about video game culture, because that classically gripped YouTube in a way that I don't think I mm. or anybody else expected. And it became, you know, PewDiePie has got 65 million subscribers, mm. and all he did was talk over computer games in mm. the, the early well, I days. I guess esports has grown out of that yep. as well. Yeah, they fill up 15,000 stadiums. You know, and now, um, you know, Twitch is an entire business that is an entire spin out of YouTube. It's, it's YouTube for video games, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's madness. Mm. Um, so it's, I love DLC because it's just a great um, breakdown of, of, of that culture every week. Uh, and to end, is there anything you'd like to ask our audience? Or your own audience, in a slightly meta yes. fashion. If you ask. Anything I'd like to ask the yeah. audience. Um, I guess you, for our audience to listen to Intel, anybody who's on iTunes right now, try Intel because then you get the visual experience yep. and we'll load it's it with better. links. It's better. So, it better. so I will absolutely say, uh, yeah, I'd ask your audience to, to download Intel, give it a whirl, have a listen, and give us some feedback. Um, I suppose all the other thing I would I would love to to ask your your audience to do is to talk to one person this week about uh, a podcast that you like or about something that you're listening to, and let's just one person by one person increment that fifteen percent yeah. up to ninety percent. I think that's the most powerful thing that we can do. Let's do it. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks, Will. Thank you very much, Will. Cheers. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the Startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, audioed at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.